You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. They came up with this song, I Will Survive, and when I read the lyrics in the studio, we said, there's no way that this song should ever be on the B-side of anything. Singer Gloria Gaynor. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Gloria Gaynor began her professional music career in the early 1960s when she was barely out of her teens. She was recording by the time she was 22 and had a couple of albums by the time she was 30-ish. But her albums and her songs didn't really enjoy a lot of commercial success until 1978, when she went into the studio and recorded a song that became the anthem of a whole era of pop music. I Will Survive became a smash hit and inspired millions. But of course, Gloria Gaynor's life and career is not just about one hit song. In her 1997 memoir, which was also called I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor revealed all of the ups and downs of her life. So here now from 1997, my conversation with Gloria Gaynor. It struck me as I was reading your book, and it's a fascinating story you tell. Thank you. But it struck me that a, that a good title, if somebody hadn't already taken it, would have been Between Each Line of Pain and Glory, but that's all. <laughs> you've had pain and you've had glory. Oh, you've, yes. uh, you've, you've, had, you've, you've seen the mountaintop, you've seen the depths of the valley. The valleys, yes, I have. Yes, I have. But you will I, survive. I will survive. Yes, I will. Wow. Was it yeah. painful to write? I mean, you, you tell some stories in there that were very private and very must have been very painful stories even to remember, let alone write down and put in a book for people to read. Well, they might have been painful had I not found the solutions for the problems. Um, it was ther- very therapeutic. And it was rewarding in that I was able to, I know that I'm going to be able to share these solutions. I'm going to be able to share with my public empathy and hope and encouragement. Um, and in doing it, I, I was able to see the growth, the, the, the maturity, uh, and the, and the spiritual growth that I've had. And so that was rewarding. Music was always an integral part of your life, wasn't always, it? Always, always. Lots of music in my family because most of my brothers sang, my mother sang. And although I never heard my father sing, I, I'm sure that I inherited some of my vocal talent from him. You were singing once, and, and uh, uh, you probably tell a story better than I can. A neighbor of yours heard you and said, oh, I thought the radio was on. Yes, yes. That I was singing um, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? by um, Frankie Lyman and she I thought if if I sounded like the radio to her I must have sounded like him which obviously means I have a pretty good voice so yeah that's what I want to do I want to sing what a wonderful thing because I I, I couldn't help thinking at that moment supposing your neighbor would come along and said what is that racket stop that sounds like a sick cat well, I would have become a teacher because that was my <laughs> other cho- <laughs> that was my other choice of uh, careers what would have drawn you to being a teacher I am a teacher. I'm inherently a teacher. I've I've always been teaching. I can remember even in grammar school interrupting the teacher to um, explain to my classmates what she was trying to get across. And I was always able to do it. (laughs) 
There's a fine line between that and being a smart aleck, though, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is, there is. <laughs> you were something of a goody two-shoes when you were yeah, a kid. Yeah, I was, I was so boring. <laughs> I was so boring, they hated me. <laughs> why do you suppose that? Why, why do we punish the good kids, the kids who are, out, who are doing the right thing and trying, trying to be good kids? Why do we call them goody two-shoes? Why do we punish them? Why do we get nasty with them? Because it isn't normal. It's not normal. And normal simply means what, you know, most people are doing. And it wasn't normal, you know, so, you know, it wasn't comfortable for others to be around me. But yet you explain, and again, this is, this is the part that, that I thought was, was very poignant. You explained in the book that for quite some time, probably beyond where you should have, you, you remained sexually inactive. You were, you mm -hmm. didn't want to just give yourself to any guy that came along. Right. And at some point, there was, there was something that changed. You decided that maybe you should. And I don't think that if you had it to do over again, that you would do that. No, I wouldn't. But I, I was insecure. I had very low self-esteem because, I believe because I, I grew up in a home without a father. And I've learned that this is where a girl learns to be cherished and that she ought to be cherished. This is where a girl learns her sense of self-worth is from her father. Um, mom nurtures and mom teaches you how to be a woman, but mom doesn't teach you. Mom can't teach you how uh, a man is supposed to treat you. And, and not having a father, I didn't learn that. So I did, I grew up without. And then along the way, I was, as I said, showed in, told in the book, sexually abused on a number of times. This takes away a woman's sense of self-worth. This takes away a woman's, um, um, uh, self-esteem, uh, makes her insecure, takes away her choices, you know. I wonder if an amateur psychologist might read a book like yours and say, see, when she started getting applause from the public for her music, that was the approval she was seeking from her father. Is, mm. is, is there something about getting up? I, I've, I've, I've never sang on stage, but I've given speeches or talks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there is something. There's a raw energy that comes from getting a, just a polite round of applause, let alone what you were getting wild cheering crowds of approval yeah, yeah. that's got to be a high it is a high it is a high but it is a temporary high and you know that it is for something on the outside that it's not for you as a person you know that this is something that can be taken from you and you want to be accepted loved and appreciated for who you are inherently you know, for just what's what, what's on the inside. So it'd be one thing if they were standing up cheering wildly, flicking their lighters because you were Gloria. Yeah. But it was another thing when they did that because they loved I Will Survive. Right, right. Uh -huh. Because when you, if you get to the place where your applause uh, is, is, is what is giving you your self-esteem, then wh who you, what you do has become who you are. And it should never be that way. How did you become Gloria Gaynor? I became Gloria Gaynor because I began to um, sing with a record company called Joe Cedar. Joe Cedar was made up of the names of Johnny Nash, Danny, <laughs> um, can't remember his last name, and Sissy, Johnny's wife and her brother. So that was Joe Cedar, the name of the company. And Johnny Nash talked to me and said, you know, Gloria Fowles, which was my real name, uh, is not going to make it in show business. You should give yourself a name that starts with 
a G. So the people will call you GG. That'll become a pet name for your fans, for you. And, um, it'll stick. So I said, yeah, but I don't know any names that start with G, any last names. And he said, well, you know, like Gainer or I said, oh, that's good. That'll do. That'll, that'll, that'll work. So that's how I became Glory Gainer. As easy as that. As easy as that. <laughs> After this short break, Gloria Gaynor tells how her signature song almost wound up on the B side. Now back to my 1997 interview with Gloria Gaynor. I have to admit, when I first got the book, the first chapter I turned to is the chapter where you talk about I Will Survive, the song mm. that we've all come to love. I, I, from the first moment I heard it, I knew this is, this is a great song. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the very first people who were involved in it didn't think it belonged on anything but the B-side. Well, it was what happened was that the record company president gave us a project to record this song called Substitute. And the producer said, that's great. We'll be glad to do that with Gloria Gaynor if we can write the B-side. They spoke to me about the kind of subject matter that I like to sing about, uh, the kind of emotions that I like to um, um, transmit, for lack of a better word at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they came up with this song, I Will Survive. And when I read the lyrics in the studio with my husband, who's also my manager, uh, Linwood Simon, we said, you know, there's no way that this song should ever be on the B-side of anything. And we worked to get it. Um, published as as the A side it took us quite a while because nobody wanted to buck the president, you know that was his baby. <laughs> Substitute was his baby. Nobody wanted to come against him with a different idea. So after the song was released on the B side, my husband said to me, "I tell you what, let's put it do two things. We'll put it in the show, and then we'll go to Studio Fifty Four and get Richie the DJ, who is a opinion leader among DJs, to play it." And we did both those things, and so the public decided, and the rest is history. Wow. Did it even occur to you at that point that it would become not just a good song, a, a well-selling song, but the best-selling song, the signature song of the whole era? I have to admit I didn't think that far, but I did really believe, we did really believe, that it was going to be a timeless song because it had a timeless lyric. We did believe that it was going to be a song that everyone would be able to relate to. Men and women men alike. Men and women alike. Many, some of us men have seen ourselves on the opposite side of you know, being kicked out the door. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but some of us have been in the other position, too. I mean, it was, you know, right. the gender That's things work both right. ways. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> but there, you're right. There is not only a timelessness, but a, a universality about it. You mm -hmm. can apply it to a bunch of different circumstances. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be man and woman in romantic situation. Exactly. Uh, even in your own life, you've kind of modified it in later years mm -hmm. to reflect uh, the beliefs that have come to be so important to you. Yes, 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 absolutely. What happened in 1982 to you? In 1982, I finally came to the culmination of my trip through um, through a search for truth. Um, I I had to come to terms with this struggle that I was having, uh, um, whether I was going to continue to be in with the in crowd and doing the things that they were doing that made me accepted among that group, such as of recreational drugs and alcohol and parties and all of that? Or was I going to revert back to the moralistic 
um, um, upbringing that I'd had and be alone. And it, I, but I didn't have the strength to make that decision and stick with it. I was kept being pulled back and forth. And so finally, I, I, as I said, I, I searched for truth. I went through several different religions, checking out their doctrines. None of them made any sense to me until I came back to Christ where I found the strength. I found the truth that gave me the strength, um, that gave me the power to make the right decision and to begin to walk in truth. Now, this is not to say that you'd never been to church in your life. Oh, I mean, no, you, I've you been had, to church. Sure, you had But walk, going to church and even, even knowing truth does not give you the power to do what you know is right. You've got to decide to walk in truth. Yeah, knowing it and living it are two different things. That's right. That's right. And that must have been... That must have been a very, not a difficult decision to make, but it must have been that you, you'd have to take, if you will, a leap of faith. And you Absolutely. That's what makes it difficult. You have to have the faith that God is going to give you the power to follow through on the decision that you made and that there with him you will find this unconditional love that we all search for. Uh, but it, it, as you describe in the book, once you have found the faith, you've made the leap of faith, mm-hmm. Things become easier. Things become a lot easier. Now, that's not to say your, be- your life is a bed of roses. No, my life is definitely not a bed of roses because it's a day-by-day decision. And as pride is always knocking at the door, trying to say, <laughs> you can do it on your own. You can survive on your own. You can make these decisions and you can stick to them. You really have to surrender all of it to God and say, you know, I want to do this, but I don't have the strength to do this. Give me the strength. Give me the power. He He only asks for your will, and then he gives you the strength and the power to follow through. Have you, has, how do I want to phrase this properly, has, has God asked you to use your voice solely for him? Yeah, yeah. But we, there's a misconception in the world. There's a misconception even in the, in the Christian church as to what that means. A lot of people think that it means that I'm only to sing about him, that I'm only to sing, um, about God. Mm-hmm. But singing for God also means singing to other people, not only about God, but about everything that he has an opinion on. It means singing to them about everything that he has a way for you to live. In other words, <clears throat> I can sing about love between husband and wife. I can sing about uh, loving your fellow man. I can sing about integrity. I can sing about um, um, how to uh, to walk in, in truth. I can sing about all kinds of things that affect mankind because God is interested in every area of our lives and he has an optimate, optimum productive way for us to do everything. And, he, and he, I think he'd like for us to sing about it. You certainly look like a happy woman. I am. I'd just like to say that, you know, because I want to, I hope with the book to, to share uh, some empathy, some um, um hope, some encouragement, some solutions for some problems. And because I've learned that without Christ, I will survive is a little more than a catchphrase. I'd like to ask the public that when they get and read the book, before they read the book, to just say a little prayer that God would be with them as they read it. And if there's anything in this book that would help, really help the individual, that he makes sure they get it. Gloria Gaynor is 78 now. 
Her most recent album in 2019 won the Grammy for Best Roots Gospel Album. And you can find easy Amazon links to Gloria Gaynor's book and music at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1998 interview with another inspiring figure, Gladys Knight. We came across this song, and it said Midnight Plane to Houston. We said, hmm, we like the way the storyline goes. So we came up with Midnight Train to Georgia. That sounds better. And my 1991 conversation with a Motown diva, Martha Reeves. We were in love with one another. We sang songs and crooned to one another and just fell in love. There are a lot of children walking around today that I consider Motown babies because we sang about love. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. Back in the 1950s and 60s, his father was one of the most vilified men in the world as the leader of the Soviet Union. So next time, my 2001 conversation with Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei Khrushchev. Both of them, Kennedy and Khrushchev. My father was prepared to discussion with the president. His goal to protect the Cuba, not start the war. And the Kennedy have to reach his goal, how he can take these missiles out. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>